Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Hello, my name is Will and you're listening to Exploding Helicopter, the only podcast in the world with a license to watch films where helicopters explode. Now, the internet recently worked itself into a confected tizzy over the news that the next James Bond film was going to be called Shatterhand. Of course, no one really needed to get all hot and bothered because just two seconds of research would have told you that Shatterhand is just a working title. But for 007 aficionados, there was an interesting nugget of news amongst all the fake froth and furore because the Shatterhand title suggested producers were mining a particular book in Fleming's spy series for ideas, namely the 1964 novel You Only Live Twice. Given that we've still got nearly a year to wait before Bond 25 finally emerges from the shadows, I thought why not take a look at the film that already bears that name. So on this show we're looking at 1967's You Only Live Twice. Obviously, when you're looking to tackle a film like this, your ideal guest is a cat-stroking maniac who likes to keep a piranha pool inside his hollowed-out volcano. So with me today is Richard Kirkham from Kirkham A Movie A Day. Welcome to the show, Richard. Glad to be here, Will. My piranha pool is currently being cleaned, so the piranha <laughs> are at the uh, kennel. I'm somewhat relieved to uh, to know that. But uh, yeah, I uh, when I thought about doing this film, uh, you were pretty much top of the list of people that I thought I would get in to do this because uh, we were recently on a Lambcast podcast episode uh, together talking uh, about the Bond films and. Uh, I know that you are a massive fan of, of the Bond series, and obviously the Lambcaster are doing this kind of retrospective look at the entire series. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we have an upcoming one I think we're doing at the end of May, and You Only Live Twice will be featured in that uh, episode of the Lambcast. So this is good timing. But as we're talking about Bond films, I wondered, uh, you know, what is your favorite Bond film? And what for you is your is your worst Bond or your least favorite? Well, everybody's favorite should be the same. Goldfinger is the best Bond film. It's the one that uh, took James Bond to the levels that he has been at for the last 50 years. It's the most entertaining. It has the cleverest quips and it has an outrageous story that's just believable enough to almost think they hadn't gone over the top yet, even though they had. Uh, it, it's vastly entertaining, and it has clearly the best theme song of all of the films. Uh, when it comes to the worst Bond films, oh, oh, you know, to me, a bad Bond film simply means that it's a bad movie that I'm going to love. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably uh, Die Another Day is mm. at the bottom of the pile, because when you're dealing with invisible cars, it's a little... <laughs> <laughs> little little too much. I also Moonraker I think is a little over the top as well. They they went a little far with all of the clever quips and the contemporary references. I enjoy both of those movies. I watch them, but uh, they are lesser Bond films mm. in my view. Yeah, cuz I, I don't know what you think, but I don't think there's actually a really a truly bad Bond film. I mean, even the ones there's just ones that I enjoy more than others I mean even the, even what I would even what I would consider the worst one is still a film that I would very happily rewatch on any almost any occasion oh absolutely absolutely if either of those films was on and I was flipping the channels around on the satellite I would stop and watch it you know it's not when I say it's a a bad Bond film it's maybe out of the 24 it's number 23 or 24 but that mm. still means that it is ahead of thousands of other movies that I would see 
Now, obviously, Richard, you are appearing here on the Exploding Helicopter podcast. So I always like to ask guests who are appearing on the, here what they think about exploding helicopters in films. Because obviously, you know, that is my personal obsession. But, you know, I appreciate not everyone has necessarily thought about it. So, uh, yeah, I wondered, you know, have you kind of noticed the strange way that helicopters explode in films before? You know, do you have a favorite helicopter explosion in movies? You know, I have noticed uh, exploding helicopters. I've enjoyed them. Uh, what I always thought was the first exploding helicopter was in From Russia With Love, but having recently listened to an episode on your show, I know that it is not the first one, that there was an earlier one. So I've I've always looked at exploding helicopters with interest, but I've not uh, paid attention to it with the detail that you have uh, embraced this subject. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully I am not setting you off on the same path to madness that, that I am now pursuing. So, you know, hopefully you're still able to, uh, you know, retain a, a rational appreciation of uh, helicopter explosions in film. And it, you know, it's not, hopefully it's not something that is going to consume you because certainly the way it has now consumed my life, it is, it is a kind of cause for regret. But, you know, there's no changing for me now, Richard. <laughs> I'm going to have to look for an allied field like levitating speedboats or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, if you, I am all for supporting niche endeavors like that. So if that is the, uh, if that is the route that you want to go down, then all I say all power to you, and I will do everything in my power to support you in the uh, in the quest of uh, levitating speedboats. Thank you, thank you. If it happens, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I think it's time we got stuck into uh, You Only Live Twice. So let's listen to a 1960s style version of the classic Trailer Man trailer. Bond is back, grabbing love where he finds it. Like a lamb to the slaughter. Everywhere. Bond. Rises in the east. The odds? A thousand to one. But they don't stand a chance. Get down! You Only Live Twice came out in 1967. It was the fifth James Bond film and followed on from the hugely successful Thunderball. After American and Russian spacecraft go missing, each superpower blames the other. With the world teetering on the brink of nuclear war, James Bond is sent to Japan to investigate the cause of the missing spaceships. After faking his own death, 007 teams up with Tiger Tanaka, the head of the Japanese Secret Service, and the beautiful Aki, an agent in its employ, to uncover this sinister conspiracy. Sean Connery is Bond once again, and series regulars Bernard Lee, Lois Maxwell and Desmond Llewellyn are all present. Also in the film is horror icon Donald Pleasance, who plays the evil criminal mastermind Blofeld. In a brief role, there's the great character actor Charles Gray, who interestingly went on to play Blofeld a few years later in Diamonds Are Forever. You Only Live Twice was directed by Lewis Gilbert, who also helmed the 007 adventures The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. You Only Live Twice has a 6.9 rating on IMDb and a 68% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. But uh, enough of all that. Richard, what did you make of You Only Live Twice? 
Well, You Only Live Twice has been one of those middling bonds for me. If uh, I looked at my list on Letterboxd of my of the Bond films, I'm sure it's probably somewhere in the high teens. It's one of those films that I enjoy, but it doesn't seem to me like it holds together quite as well as the other films have over the years. And it, it sometimes felt a little disjointed here and there. Uh, there were things that happened in it that seemed to make no sense to me, but that doesn't mean that they weren't fun to watch. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that's fun to watch in this film. It has a charming title song that is sung slightly flat by Nancy Sinatra, and I always like the theme songs, it, 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 so it, it's fine. Uh, and I and the motif, like uh, most Bond films of the era, it's really part travelogue. You get a chance to visit an exotic location and see mm. some of the beautiful sights. And that, to me, was one of the things that was best about You Only Live Twice. It also does, of course, have uh, an air-to-air helicopter battle, which, you know, I don't think you get in a lot of movies. You certainly don't. And uh, we will be talking about that uh, in greater depth later. But uh, yeah, I think we probably are going to find ourselves having very similar opinions on uh, on You Only Live Twice. I mean, this is an exercise in style over substance uh, or maybe not even style over substance. It's maybe an ex- uh, an exercise in spectacle over substance because it just feels like at this point in, in the Bond series that the producers have just got so carried away in trying to outdo the previous movies that, uh, you know, they've amped everything up to 11 and they've, you know, they've forgotten about some of the fundamentals of, of movie making, which is about having plot that makes sense and interesting characters and events that kind of fit together in a coherent way but uh yeah they've got just carried away by the exotic locales the spectacular action and yeah they've forgotten about some of those fundamentals and so it it sadly kind of makes for as you say a, a rather middling bond entry and i think some of the formula starts to show here you know you 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 mentioned goldfinger being your favorite bond i feel that's the film that really sort of established the the template of what you get in a Bond movie. Oh, yeah. Thunderball repeats that or uses that template. I know Thunderball isn't a terribly rated uh, Bond movie. I quite like it. I, it's one. Of, it's one. Of, it is one that I do appreciate a lot. But I do feel that you only live twice. The the kind of I think that is that. I think you only live twice is actually a worse Bond film than Thunderball uh, because I just think oh, that yeah I would definitely agree with that <laughs> yeah because I think whatever whatever you say about you know whatever the flaws and there are very obvious flaws with Thunderball at least the plot hangs together in a in a coherent way in a way in which you only live twice it just it just really doesn't yeah well trying to start a war between the United States and the Soviet Union as a plot device doesn't seem to make a lot of sense and uh, hiring mm. Spectre to do it by the Chinese government. We assume the Chinese government. It's never identified, but mm. uh, let's face it. That's who they're talking about. That also doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's an opportunity to use Spectre again, which I understand they wanted to exploit because, you know, that they, they want to be able to sell their movie all over the place and they don't want to make villains out of potential customers. <laughs> Someday they, they probably thought, We'll be able to show this film in uh, China or the Soviet Union, and you know we let's let's make the villain somebody that is generic in nature, and that's okay too. Mm. But there's just 
you know, so, like you said, some of the stuff, it's all about spectacle. And this is the one where everything, all the spectacle starts being able to be parodied. When you have a secret lair inside of a volcano, you're just inviting, you know, Austin Powers <laughs> and Maxwell Smart to come along and make fun of you. <laughs> yeah, you really are. I mean, I, th I think, uh, you know, that despite the fact that this is a fairly middling bond, it is fairly iconic in, in many regards. And certainly in terms of Donald Pleasance's portrayal of Blofeld, in terms of his hideout, his lair in inside this uh, volcano, his sort of extravagant ways of disposing of uh, henchmen or underlings who have displeased him. I mean, this is a this is a film that is almost is almost a parody of itself in those in those particular elements, or certainly sets up the archetypes. But I think you touched on a couple of other points here, which I think really hurt this film, which is it's just not clear really what's going on in the main arc of, of the plot here. As you as you're saying, this confrontation between America and the Russians that is being engineered by Spectre, but at the behest of it's not quite clear. And really the kind of the consequences, you know, we're led to sort of believe that there's going to be some sort of big showdown between America and Russia. But that never really looks real within the film and the failure to establish the main arcs of its plot end up really just hurting this film because you're just left watching it and it doesn't really feel like there's any stakes and you're not quite clear what's going on and I think any film that fails to do those two things it, you're you're, you know, you're really up against a massive task to try and make a film work if you're not you know making those two things function well, we never, you know, we never see anything except the tech room in the Soviet Union where the spaceships are being launched. We don't see the generals sitting around having a conversation. We do see generals sitting around having a conversation at the Pentagon. They kind of flash the Pentagon a couple of times. But it seems you don't get anything going on in the world except uh, occasional shots on the television of, you know, air wings taking off and landing. And uh, that's supposed to be the build up to war. You know, it's like... They don't use the term DEFCON, but they are, you know, mm. basically tell the military, well, be on alert, be ready. We're going to, you know, it's uh, war is imminent. And, uh, you know, that's that's the declaration that they make toward the end that it's not imminent. And let's just cancel the war. And it just feels like they are flipping a switch on and off. And we're all supposed to get excited about that switch being flipped on or off. And it doesn't really seem like that's something that would either be likely to have mm. happen in those circumstances or didn't seem likely to happen in this particular film. Uh, you don't get a lot of background on that sort of thing. So it's mostly just we know that there's tension and a problem coming when the um, astronauts in their capsule are going to disappear and there's going to be finger pointing. Uh, but the finger pointing, the idea that that's going to lead to a war is, well, it gets repeated in another weak entry in the film in the film series with tomorrow never dies uh where we basically have mm. the same kind of thing going on where they're trying to manufacture a war between great britain and china and it's the same sort of thing well i think we've established here that the main plot is a bit of a mess but you know i think we've both sort of identified this as one of the weaker bonds so i you know i wondered what other things you felt you know, had gone wrong with this film that means that it's that we both see it as a bit of a disappointment within the Bond series. Well, it is. Uh, it's a little long, and uh, the 
when they get to the action, it is spectacular. But I tell you, some of the effects look a little cheesy. The idea of doing a space-based film in the 1960s, it's perfectly understandable why you would want to do that, because that was you know, the age of the space race. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, all of that was on television all the time. This is before the moon landing. Uh, we still had Gemini, which was going up with just two astronauts in the capsule. And you can kind of see that that's going on there. But then you get this look uh they're doing the best they can with the special effects. And I appreciate what they were faced with. But there are a couple of sequences where it looks like an episode of Thunderbirds where, <laughs> you know, the, the miniatures are landing or taking off. And it's just. They can't quite sell it. The mm. the uh, spacecraft that goes up to capture the Russian and the uh, American space capsules looks like it's off of a, a toy. You know, I, I mean, I understand the design was supposed to look ominous, uh, but it does look a little tinny. And it's just, although there are some things in it that look spectacular, the some of the effects just don't look all that mm. good. There's there's a sequence at the end where the volcano erupts apparently because we have an explosion and it's a, a process shot that looked old fashioned in ten years earlier in the 1950s and they're doing the same kind of thing here. So it's they're trying to make it as spectacular as possible, but it doesn't always look as spectacular as it needs to. And mm. uh, I think that's a shortcoming. And you know, Sean Connery I think is a little he's beginning to get a little bored with these films. <laughs> Yes, I do think that that is somewhat obvious in You Only Live Twice, which obviously if you're if you follow the Bond films, this was his last film in his, I guess, original run in the series. He uh, hung up his license to kill after this particular movie and, and handed it over to uh, to George Lazenby. He was just essentially tired of the the hoopla and rigmarole that went along with being uh, James Bond, which obviously was an absolute uh, phenomena in the 1960s. For myself, I think some of the other films, uh, some of the other things that this film gets wrong or doesn't or fails to make work are uh, basically it fails to really establish any interesting characters in this in this film. So you obviously have Donald Pleasance's Blofeld, but he doesn't really feature in the film until right until the end and so until then you have uh some characters who are clearly you know allied with the the villains but you know they just compared to the previous films they just seem they just seem such non-entities so you have um the femme fatale is is yeah uh, almost non-existent she's there and she has a couple sequences then the closest they come to having something that is a little bit tangible as a a threat or a sexual come on is that moment when she gets out the uh, surgical Mm. device and she's going to torture him and it passes so quickly and turns into just a standard seduction scene and and then she's done and she just doesn't feel like a special character at all and Osato who's the head of the industrial firm that Spectre mm. is using is has basically no personality whatsoever he's just <laughs> he's just a business figure in the background uh and Hans the you know the muscle mm. character he doesn't speak a line and he he has one good fight scene and that's all there is all the villain characters are non-entities in this film you don't get anybody that you feel particularly intimidated by there's not a continuing threat uh and donald pleasance i think he is 
he's an interesting looking uh, Blofeld. They they doll him up so he looks a little bit more sinister. But he's only in the film in the last uh, twenty minutes of the movie, mm. and he, his uh, back and forth with Bond is a little bit limited. You, you don't get quite as much of the traditional villain monologuing as mm. you might someplace else. Exactly, and I, I think you have articulated the shortcomings of the of the, the other villains in this movie superbly. Because if you look back to Goldfinger, you you have Odd Job in Thunderball, you have uh, Fiona Volpe, you know, uh, you know, you've got all these great villains and great secondary henchmen in all of the previous Bond films, and this is this one. You know, apart from Donald Pleasant's Blofeld, there are these other characters, but they're absolutely transparent. They're absolute non-entities and they bring nothing to the table. And it just, yeah, yeah, I think it really hurts the film as a consequence. Yeah, I, I think that that's true. It's so much better when you have one of the secondary villains in, as a continuing character in the story who develops kind of an animosity mm. or a competitiveness with uh, Bond, or they have a couple of confrontations. Yeah, there's a there's a chance to do to one up Bond at some point or other, and you don't really get any of that in this particular film. Mm. Well, we've kind of ragged on You Only Live Twice quite a bit, so uh, you know I don't want to I don't want to uh, spend all of the time discussing this film, just picking holes in it. So, uh, despite the the flaws that we've talked about, uh, you know what what are the kind of the good elements of You Only Live Twice? Well, I think the location obviously is spectacular. They get to Tokyo and they show you all the neon lights in mm. the city, and uh, you get to enjoy that. The landscape when they go to the islands are just uh, fantastic and beautiful. Although I've criticized it here as being kind of cheesy, the volcano secret lair, when they have the battle in the volcano secret lair, that's pretty damn cool. Yep. You know, ninjas falling from the sky <laughs> on uh, ropes that unfurl and, and you know using karate samurai swords and guns to battle the enemy. You know, that's an over-the-top kind of thing, but it was a fun over-the-top kind of mm. thing. I really enjoyed that. Mm. You know, I think Bond gets some good quips here or there. Uh, the line when uh, Hans ends up being dinner for the piranha, you know, where he, <laughs> he simply says, bon appetit. Yeah, that was a good one. I, I, I enjoyed that. And this was one where the interplay between Money Penny and Bond in the first section when they dig him out of the ocean and take mm. him into the submarine – I enjoyed that, and I ha and, and I had to, I had to chuckle when he goes in through that um, water sealed door into M's office, and basically the office is exactly the same as it would be in uh, uh, in London or whatever. Yeah, Admiralty Square there in Great Britain, where it's all paneled walls, and he's got his library there, and there's the desk, and it's like, yep, okay, this is kind of fun. <laughs> Now, one thing that I think is quite interesting about You Only Live Twice is this was the first film that essentially ignored the novels. So prior to this, the previous James Bond films had, to a greater or lesser extent, essentially been faithful to the novels which you know they took their name from, whereas You Only Live Twice was pretty much the first film to to sort of jettison the the novel and you know create its own sort of story within it now i know you've 
are a bit of an aficionado of Bond. You've watched obviously or watched all the films. You've you've read the books. I mean, what did you make as of the the kind of the film versus book as someone who's uh, you know familiar with both? Well, I think they probably abandoned the book story because of the uh, setting of Japan suggested some things for them that they would want to do a little bit differently. And in sequencing, You Only Live Twice as a Book actually comes after Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and they have Her Majesty's Secret Service as the film that follows this one. So I'm not exactly sure why they did them that way, uh, except, of course, to take advantage of the space race and the Japan setting. Uh, In the book, of course, Bond is after... Blofeld and Irma Bunt, and his whole goal is to wipe them out. And their Spectre has essentially been shattered uh, at that particular point, and it's almost a revenge drama that you're you're dealing mm. with. We have some cruel, sick people who are carrying out their own personal sadist exercise, but it's got nothing to do with uh, international world threatening. And mm. I think that you know that doesn't make. I don't think that's quite as cinematic, so it probably made sense for them to abandon that. Uh, you know, and uh, the Japanese tradition of uh, suicide, I guess, is a little bit of a downer as a film. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure you would sell that as the you know, exciting trailer to get people to come to see a film. So uh, let's jettison that, and you know, we got we got to tell a different story. And and down the road, they're going to have to do that anyway because time moves on, and the things that uh, might have worked in the 1950s when you had the Cold War going on, and it was really mm. spies, and you kind of are shifting to this independent operator mode with Spectre. I guess it makes sense to just say let's let's do what we want to do and make it as big and grand as we can. We should also talk about Blofeld because prior to this film, he'd only been a name that was mentioned or or a partially glimpsed character. So here we finally get to see Blofeld, you know, fully revealed to us. So you know, I wondered what you made of Pleasance's Blofeld in this movie. Well, I know that they wanted to make him look ominous, and they do the makeup to give him that uh, weird kind of eye condition, and uh, he's got his head shaved. What's kind of strange is that we don't see him in all of the earlier films except from you know, kind of the chest down. We see him petting the cat, mm. and uh, we, we get a uh, glance from the back in a couple of the earlier Bond films, but he didn't sound like he was uh, – he sounded – brilliant and ominous but he doesn't sound like he's mm. you know like a, a monstrous looking person that that's why we haven't seen him and so i think that that was a little bit of a stunt that they're doing to make the film more distinctive and they immediately abandon that stunt in the next film where <laughs> ofeld shows up where he's 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 not deformed he's not mm. uh, easily identifiable uh he's suddenly well I won't say Telly Savalas is nondescript, but he's certainly not uh, deformed in the way mm. that Donald Pleasance's character is. And when Charles Gray takes over, it's like, well, he's gone from being this you know, bald-headed, <laughs> uh, deranged-looking guy to a sophisticated Englishman who is <laughs> – you know, you you would find in the drawing room. You know, so mm. they they kind of bounce back and forth with what they're doing with that character. 
Yes, it's very interesting to to think about the Blofeld character in the sort of the sequence of films that we get here. So obviously we get Donald Pleasance in You Only Live Twice. We then get Telly Savalas in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And as you say, we get Charles Gray then in Diamonds Are Forever. And I'm always amused to sort of think about that in terms of the James Bond franchise, because 30, 40, 50 years later, we live in a world of the, the Marvel movie universe where... where an entire interconnected web of movies has been meticulously mapped out so that they all neatly interlock together. And, you know, here you have one franchise making three films, you know, one after the other in in the sequence of a few years. (laughs) And and their main villain, um, you know, loses scars and then grows a full head of hair and changes actor three three times. And somehow, somehow that's okay. It just, I just find it amazing that, uh, you know, that that they were just essentially making up as they went along. Continuity was not something that they were worried about when it came to <laughs> Spectre and Blofeld. <laughs> clearly, yeah. clearly not. But, um, you know, how do you, what do you think um, in terms of, uh, I guess, Blofeld overall in the series? What do you think is perhaps the, the best iteration of the character? Well, I know that uh, Spectre is criticized by some people. I quite enjoyed it. I, the first time I saw it, I thought it was moderately entertaining i went back and saw it a whole bunch of times i bought one of those um they had a promotional card you spend a hundred bucks and you could see the movie as many times as you wanted as long as it was playing in the theater so i went maybe a half dozen times and i got to appreciate it more and more and uh, christoph waltz i think is a better version of blofeld than we get because there's more personality there's more you know, they are retconning his relationship mm. with Bond a little bit, but uh, no, let me restate that a lot. Uh, but <laughs> but the, the way the character is working in this scheme of plot and uh, the way the organization is supposed to work, I think it makes a little bit more sense. I, I quite liked Telly Savalas in Honor Majesty's Secret Service as Blofeld because he's a little bit more vigorous and physical mm. in the film. He's not just uh, scampering off at the last moment like poor Donald Pleasance has to do. And <laughs> Charles Gray just never seemed to me very Blofeld-like, uh, no. especially when we're looking at three different versions of Charles Gray as Blofeld in the course of that film. It feels a little bit uh, gimmicky. Um, I, I think the way they did it originally, where we didn't really see him, was... Mm was probably the best and it's not canon but uh max von Sydow as blofeld is maybe a little bit closer to the way i had imagined him when i was reading the books and maybe a little bit closer to christoph waltz in the more contemporary bond thanks richard okay i think we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to be looking at the exploding helicopter action yay (laughs) (laughs) i'm loving your enthusiasm You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. 
So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. We're back, and now we're looking at the exploding helicopter action. Bond must find Blofeld's base, so he gets Q to come over to Japan with Little Nelly, a heavily armed flat-pack helicopter. Bond's reconnoiter appears fruitless until he's pursued by four Spectre helicopters. Despite the fact it's only a small chopper, Little Nelly has an extensive array of weaponry on board. Bond dispatches the first helicopter with flamethrowers before manoeuvring above the second and destroying it using aerial mines, which gently float down on little parachutes, much to the bemusement of the doomed pilot. Bond continues to make short work of Spectre's chopper squadron, blowing up the next with his rockets before making it a full house of four exploding helicopters by destroying the last one with his air-to-air heat-sinking missiles. Richard, what did you make of the exploding helicopter action? Well, I like the fact that the helicopters all explode for a reason here, that they are being, you know, they're engaged in an air-to-air battle, that there are missiles and mines and flamethrowers involved and it's not just the helicopter exploding for no reason you know Mm. because uh you know a bullet goes off the side (laughs) and suddenly the helicopter explodes as a result uh or you have to wait for it to explode when it runs into the mountainside although we do get one of those uh, I, I quite enjoyed the fact that all four of those helicopters that are after Little Nelly do end up uh, in an explosion, although one of them, we don't really get to see the explosion. We just get to see the smoke from the explosion. We're cheated on that third one. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the flamethrower one, all of them look a little, uh, what would you say? Um, model work? They're, they're clearly models, and uh, it's clearly... Early in the uh, effects work process, they look good, but they do, you know, if you held them up to the standard of uh, the CGI work that gets done these days, they don't quite hold up. And it seems like each time the helicopter explodes, the helicopter has to stop for it to explode. (laughs) It has to hover in one spot for the explosion. And then we get a secondary explosion with that first one when it crashes into the mountainside. Uh, I, I kind of like that. You know, the the effects work, I, I agree with you looking at it, you know, 50 years on. It's clearly you can see the, you know, the, the, the joins, I guess you can clearly see the methods that they're using to do this. But, um, you know, it still looks it still looks really good. And I think, oh, yeah, you know, you can just buy into the fact that this is, you know, what you're watching at the moment is is state of the art special effects um uh, you know for the time and uh you know it is uh you know i think uh overall an absolutely fabulous uh fabulous sequence well i love the gyrocopter little nelly that is just so much fun you know assembling it and putting it mm. together and having the conversation while that's happening and then of course we get the cue moment where he explains all of the little <laughs> special gadgets on the helicopter and we know they're all going to get to be used at some point or other the only one i don't think he uses is the smoke uh mm. device you know he, it gets mentioned but it doesn't really get used maybe they only had the other four helicopters that have had to rent a fifth helicopter in order to uh <laughs> have it get lost in the smoke and run into a cliff cuz that's the way i think i would have done it you know mm. i'd have had it following close i'd have you know he'd have put in the smoke and then 
little Nelly maybe do a backflip and uh, disappear out of the the scene and the helicopter would fly straight into the mountain there or into the volcano. Uh, So that's the sequence that I think we missed. But Mm. all of the others get used and uh, they they look great. Look, when you have the actual helicopters and little Nelly flying around, that looks really good. And the model work is fine. It's like you said, for its time. If you're suspending your disbelief for everything else in the movie, it's easy to do that for this <laughs> and, and and just say, yep, that's the way it would go. And uh, they're real fireballs. And I like when the, the two helicopter crashes that we see on the ground, you actually see parts and pieces of the helicopter fly up off of the helicopter. So the model work is pretty good there. And just for those of people who are watching this film and, you know, wondering about the uh, the reality of this particular scene, I mean, the little Nelly uh, helicopter uh, that we see in this sequence is actually, uh, you know, a real helicopter. It's, uh, according to my research, a Wallace WA-116 Agile Autogyro. So it was actually uh, an aircraft that uh, existed and it's not just some sort of uh, cinematic invention for this uh, for this movie. Uh, one thing i did want to point out richard uh, you know is that uh, this film you only live twice features four exploding helicopters and in terms of cinema's approach to exploding helicopters it would be nearly 20 years well no it would be over 20 years before hollywood exploded four helicopters in a single movie again now do you know what the next film was to explode this many helicopters in a single movie uh broken arrow okay well it's a little bit earlier than broken arrow but uh if i say to you sylvester stallone oh help you out this has got to be um one of the rambo films it was indeed it was the the most it was the most expensive movie ever made and they decided to spend a good chunk of that budget blowing up four helicopters so rambo 3 which came out in 1988 was the next film that basically decided to okay you know what we're actually going to explode four helicopters in a movie until then no one had sort of gone near this uh, this total of uh, chopper fireballs in a single movie well their diet i'm sure was influenced by the budgets <laughs> <laughs> and should i know um we should probably also mention there is another outstanding uh, helicopter sequence in this movie which uh, there's no there's no exploding exploding helicopter at the end of it but it's still an outstanding helicopter sequence which is the the the, the sequence where we see bond being pursued by some villains and his uh, japanese secret service aide whistles up a a big helicopter to come and remove the pursuing vehicle by means of a, a massive magnet that is uh, slung from underneath the chopper and it picks up the car and uh, dunks it into uh, into the uh, into the ocean i uh, you know, I particularly, uh, you know, that was a scene, as I say, as somebody who watched, has been watching this film as a kid, that was a scene that uh, I, I has stuck in my mind ever since I was a little one. Well, it's it's almost all of it is real. They did mm. it. They had one of those giant double gyro helicopters. I'm, I'm sure that you probably know what it's called, but it was massive. And uh, they actually did the stunt where they picked up the car on the road. And uh, you, they do have an insert shot where they, you see the gunman in the car. But later on, they actually drop the car into the water. And that, they, that's all real. They actually did that. So it's pretty, pretty damn cool. You know? The helicopter doesn't explode, but the car definitely takes a dive. 
Maybe we should see if we can get James Cameron to uh, dig out his uh, deep sea gear and see if he can go and find. I mean, he found the Titanic. Why can't he go and find that car yeah, in uh, it, Tokyo they, Bay? Yeah, they just dropped it in the bay there, so it shouldn't be that hard to locate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think it's uh, it's time to wrap things up here. Richard, thanks for joining me. Do you want to take a, a moment to uh, you know plug what you do uh, online? Oh, sure. That's great. Yeah, my website is Kirkama Movie a Day. I have both a Blogspot site and a WordPress site with the same title. That's the content is basically the same. The layout is a little bit different, but some people seem to have an easier time navigating one or the other. So it's on both locations. Feel free to come by either site. I also have a site for, uh, that is uh, the Strother Martin Film Project. Strother Martin, the character actor who died in 1980, was a he was a relative of mine, uh, kind of a distant relative, but uh, I've decided that I'm going to kind of track his movie appearances and uh, post on each of them as I get an opportunity. It's a little sketchy. I think I've maybe done two or three entries in the last year. Uh, he appeared in uh, about 60 movies on screen, so I've maybe posted on a dozen of them so far. And as a character actor, he's usually in the background as a... He comes in and steals the scene for three minutes and then disappears and everybody remembers him. And then, of course, I am the co-host of the Lambcast. So on most of the current episodes, you will catch me adding support to Jay and uh, or uh, when he's gone, which he will be for the uh, Avengers Endgame hosting for the show. Thanks, Richard. And uh, yeah, go and check out his uh, stuff online uh, as always. Come and visit the Exploding Helicopter uh, website, explodinghelicopter.com. If you like what we do, please tell your friends. Um, thanks so much for listening. We know that you don't necessarily need to do this, but uh, you know we appreciate each and every one of you who does. Uh, we'll be back soon, but until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Oh, cheers. Siamese vodka. <laughs> <laughs>